Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. This is Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today. John and Peter are the authors of Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support citizens and neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a stronger local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for people on the margins. This is all based on the knowledge that each neighborhood has people with underutilized gifts and talents. Each guest on these conversations is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future. And each guest reminds us of our power to create a purpose-filled life and holds the conviction that we can be the architects of the future we want to inhabit. John and Peter are joined today by Jeff Yost, President and CEO of the Nebraska Community Foundation, which is a national model for its innovative work in community building. And he's going to be sharing some interesting stories today. So before I turn things over, I'd like to tell you how you can get into this conversation. And there are two ways. If you joined us by telephone, press star 8 on your phone to be put into the queue. And if you're following along on the web, just post your comments in the chat room, because we do want to hear from you. Uh, Leslie Steven, our website manager, is joining us in the chat room today and can answer some queries there. And after John and Peter and Jeff have talked for a while, we'll open up the call. So I'll turn things over to John now to begin today's conversation. Thanks, Maggie, and welcome, everybody. Uh, we're going to have a real treat today because uh, I want to share with you all a, a discovery I made, although some of you may have made it too. Uh, I don't, a couple of years ago, I found out that in one of our states, in over 250 small towns mostly and, uh, and smaller cities, that uh, – there had developed organizations of people whose insight was that there was a lot of wealth and that that wealth could be uh, identified and invested in ways that would uh, shape the future and define the, the community's possibilities. Uh, it was a movement that had spread so far that I could hardly believe it. So today, uh, we're joined by Jeff Yost, who is uh, uh, one of the people at the center of, of uh, getting this initiative started. And uh, so Jeff, welcome. And uh, I wonder if you could uh, let us know uh, a little bit of how... Uh, what was the antecedent to your focusing on on local wealth? I know there was a study that uh, got you started. Can you tell us about it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, John and Peter, thank you for 
Thank you for having me, and thank you for inviting the Nebraska Community Foundation to be a part of this conversation. We're certainly honored to do that, and asset-based community development and all of the the terrific work that is that is explored within your abundant community book. These have been undergirding principles of our, of our work for the last 20 years, so um, it's just an honor to be here. Thanks. Uh, the Nebraska, as I mentioned, the Nebraska Community Foundation got started 20 years ago. We're just celebrating our 20th anniversary um, with the whole idea that in so many ways um, communities had changed and communities really didn't have the same you know, type of discretion that they had had previously. And certainly within the context of Nebraska in particular, that we needed to find different ways to have a more positive narrative about the future, a more positive conversation with, you know, between parents and their kids over the kitchen table and between adults and youth in, in communities um, to try to attract that next generation to wanting to be a part of all of this work. So so much of the, the underpinning for this work started with um, – the tremendous outmigration that we've that we've seen over the decades in many many rural places throughout Nebraska and throughout the northern Great Plains, and how do you help um, how do you help create even greater pride in place, and how do you how do you help people to craft a narrative um, where they're really talking in positive opportunistic terms about the future of their place? Um, so this has really been a work in progress over time, but one of um, the pieces we started with is in many places around the country, community foundations had gotten started, and we're certainly interested in the, the whole idea of how do you use local charitable giving as one more tool within that community development puzzle. And I think we've certainly found that it's even, uh, it's even more powerful than we thought it might be. Uh, to start, I want to start with how we define the Nebraska Community Foundation. And we always talk about the Nebraska Community Foundation being a community development institution that uses philanthropy as a tool. Uh, we're not in a we're not a charity. We're not in the business of doing things for people. Uh, we're in the business of figuring out how can we be a value-added partner to community leaders to help them build uh, the community of their dreams. So a few years into this work, um, there was a study done at Boston College uh, called Millionaires in the Millennium, and Paul Sherevich and John Havens really explored this whole intergenerational transfer of wealth and the magnitude of that. Well, if, if you're in a place like Nebraska and a lot of the next generation had, in fact, migrated someplace else, you know, not only was the population of many of these places shrinking, uh, but the demographics of these places were aging because the people that were leaving were, of course, younger people and, and people early in their careers. Uh, so it's not a very long walk to figure out if there's this massive transfer of wealth that's happening between generations. If the next generation doesn't, in fact, inhabit that same place, then not only are you losing all of that human resource capacity if the next generation doesn't return to that community and live and work there, uh, you're potentially going to lose all of that or much of that extraordinary financial wealth that's been built up, especially since uh, World War II. 
so over the years, we've done a few of these transfer of wealth studies, and I just want to be very respectful of time today, but um, so we can go into it in, in some deeper history if, if people wanted to within questions. Uh, but we always knew the transfer of wealth is huge. Um, but I'm an, I'm an economist by training, and I honestly didn't have any clue that it was going to be of this magnitude. Uh, Nebraska is about 1.8 million people. Uh, it's a very large geography. There's actually 532 communities within the state of Nebraska. And it's about 500 miles from, from end to end if you go from uh, northwest to southeast. Uh, for those 1.8 million people uh, in that reasonably large geographical area, our estimate, and we think this is reasonably conservative, is some $600 billion will transfer from one generation to the next to the next 50 years. That's a billion. Uh, billion. Yeah. Well. Those are staggering sums. Um, and a longtime colleague of mine, uh, a gentleman that is a co-director of something called the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship, is a gentleman named Don Mackey. Uh, Don and I were kind of the, the primary authors of this original study, and then Don has gone on to do uh, this type of analysis in many, many other places around the country. Uh, and then in the context of Nebraska, we've really used it as not just understanding the large macroeconomic opportunity, but there's 93 counties in Nebraska. We actually figured out a methodology for creating an estimate uh, for each and every one of those counties. And then we'll even break it down proportionally uh, to help community leaders begin to think of endowment building within the context of that transfer of wealth. Uh, so in, let's say, there's a, uh, a particular county where the transfer of wealth over the next 50 years is estimated to be $1 billion. So let's just, let's just take $1 billion. Part of what we'll talk with community leaders about and help them go through a visioning and action planning process and ultimately a goal-setting exercise associated with endowment building for their place is what if just 5% of that transfer of wealth were given back to the place where it was made and accumulated? Well, 5% of $1 billion is $50 million. And if that's endowed and you assume that you're going to get a, a 4 to 4.5% four rate of return or a payout from that particular endowment, you know. So 50 times 0.045 is, you know, over $2 million annually that would be a perpetual income stream to benefit that place. Well, we all know the money is important, but at the end of the day, communities made up by people, people being in relationship with one another, people really trusting one another and having a really, you know, opportunistic collective vision about what they can build together. Uh, so if you can connect those sorts of relationships with that vision, with that capital, especially if that capital is unrestricted in nature, boy, there's a lot you can get done. And if you think about that philanthropy within the context of how does that philanthropy really serve as a margin of excellence for the future of our place? So assuming that much of what we're already doing will continue doing to help people in need to provide government services, these sorts of things. And then if you think about that, you know, 
that endowment being put in place for the future of that particular geography and then that endowment payout being used to do something above and beyond what we're already doing, that becomes a pretty exciting thing to be a part of. Um, you know, what could we use that on? How can we use that for youth engagement and business development and entrepreneurship, leadership development, uh, intergenerational conversations? I mean, all of these sorts of things that we know help to build the social fabric in our place and using it to try to build a, a whole series of new economic opportunities as well. Um, and as John mentioned, we're now doing that work in about 250 communities around the state. Uh, and that work looks differently and different in every one of those places. Um, but it's been a really a really fun journey so far. Take us to uh, one community and uh, give us a little uh, snapshot of what you might have done to get uh, to trigger the local folks who became engaged in uh, identifying and uh, uh, collecting this wealth. Yeah. How do you, how do you start that? How do you, how, practically, uh, how does the, that work? The first part I start with is that um, communities can only be uh, built and sustained by the people that live, work, and sleep there. So this is a this is a very decentralized system. Again, we're interested in being somebody's value-added partner. Uh, so one of the premises here is that this has to be both community-driven as well as everything has to be on a kind of a willing partner platform. So to start with, we're interested in working with people that are interested in working with us. Uh, so the first thing that would happen is if somebody wanted to create an affiliated fund within the context of the Nebraska Community Foundation, uh, let's take my little hometown of Red Cloud, Red Cloud for those of you that are fans of American literature is the home of Willa Cather. So you have this extraordinary cultural asset in Red Cloud, Nebraska, and Red Cloud is about 1,000 people. And it's about 60 miles off the interstate. So it's uh, you know a rural agrarian place. It's a, uh, a fair ways away from you know the sort of traditional economic corridor that, that goes across the state. Uh, in the context of Red Cloud, uh, they started an affiliated fund. Those community leaders decided that they wanted that affiliated fund to just concentrate on sort of red cloud and kind of the trade area associated with it. So in other places, community leaders may decide we want a, a community-based affiliated fund that's going to cover a county or a community-based affiliated fund that's going to cover all of the communities within our school district. Uh, within our system, all of those are, are locally governed issues and things that can always sort of morph and evolve over time. So in the in the case of a red cloud, they uh, they started their affiliated fund. They raised some money for various projects over time. At one point, um, a resident who had had grown up there. Uh, we've been doing this in various other places. So, a resident that had grown up there, he was also serving as a member of the Nebraska Community Foundation statewide board of directors. Um, made a challenge grant to help those community leaders begin to build a, an unrestricted endowment for the future of that community. So that was a $100,000 challenge grant, and that community needed to, to match that one-to-one. -one. Uh, so that got started. Um, about six years ago, we helped them go through a really intensive process of 
vision, mission, and values identification and really beginning to think through what are the strategic opportunities within this particular community. And of course, in this case, you have this incredible cultural asset. Uh, so how would you use uh, heritage tourism as one of the primary drivers for that? So this action planning process ultimately led that fund advisory committee and community leaders to determine they really wanted to concentrate on heritage tourism as an economic development strategy and early childhood education and child care as their sort of two primary pieces. And what I can say is those, uh, those community leaders have made tremendous progress. There are donors that have stepped up, uh, some in reasonably significant ways, uh, to help some of this come true from a programming standpoint, from a facility standpoint. Um, and all the while, what we're always interested in is how do you engage more and more people within your community, not only in being engaged in that conversation, but ultimately investing their time, talent, treasure within the context of that fund and that community, you know, to help continue to to build and evolve that future. Um, I, uh... so that's a you know that's a that's a quick story. We've got dozens of those, which is. It's really fun to see all the amazing work that's happening. Jeff, with uh, one, your discovery of the, the existence of this wealth and the way of framing that's quite amazing. How is your how is this different? Because most every city has a community foundation. Uh, what is it you would say is unique about your thinking or your approach to to uh, um, what what you're doing? Yeah, and, and I think it's always important to talk about all of this stuff is none of this is ever a good or a bad. It's kind exactly. of what we've discerned as making the most sense here in our place and our circumstances with our people. And what's the uh, essence of that? Yeah, so community foundations are these, you know, these incredible community development tools. I've got wonderful colleagues all over the country that are helping yeah. to to run and build community foundations, uh, and they all look different. Uh, within the context of Nebraska, I would say there's three things that are very different about the Nebraska Community Foundation. Um, first is the Nebraska Community Foundation itself is not a grant maker. All of our grant making actually happens within the context of affiliated funds, and that's mm -hmm. very intentional. Uh, because ultimately we want community leaders to be very honest with us about what are the opportunities? What are the needs? What are the you know? What are all the things we need to work on, as we as we partner with these communities to help themselves? Uh, so the Nebraska Community Foundation is is not a grant maker. We're primarily an an educator, a trainer, a facilitator. Uh, in some respects, almost connecting tissue. Yeah. Between all these. Don't all these and you places. also manage the money, don't you? We do. Uh, so when you talk about the Nebraska Community Foundation, there's just one corporation. There's about 225 affiliated funds within that one corporation. Uh, there's probably 850 or 900 sub-funds within those 225 affiliated funds. So there's uh, there's a very substantial sort of financial and, and investment management infrastructure that's here. So that's... so. You know, part of it is understanding that from a community leader, and especially within the context of a small town or a neighborhood, 
we've all been to those organizing meetings where we're like, we want to get something done. And then the next question becomes, who wants to be treasurer? (laughs) You know, we're trying to help take some of that burden off of local leaders so they can really focus on mission fulfillment, not just all of the administrative machinations associated with having a nonprofit corporation. So you basically are the uh, investment manager, and then sort of on an annual basis, uh, whatever growth is, the local group gets its proportionate uh, Yeah, it's not quite – sure, it's – yeah, it's it's along those lines. Sort of like that. Yeah. Sort of okay. like that. Um, you know, yeah. it's all it's all segregated by uh by fund and by donor intent. Um and then it's you know, it's helping those community leaders to to really pursue, you know, not only having resources but connecting that resources with vision and and engaging members of their community in what do they want to do next for the future of that place. You know, I, I, uh, I understand. Go ahead. This, this is Peter. Uh, you, there are some large cities in Nebraska and uh, or concentrated populations. Have you seen where a, an affiliated fund would be actually organized around a neighborhood? Oh, they, we have had we have had a few neighborhood associations. Uh, be affiliated funds over time, but historically, most of our work is within regional trade centers and small communities around the state, as well as we do a fair amount of effort, efforts that are either regional or statewide in, in scope as well. Uh, so, yeah, we've got it. There's a Lincoln Community Foundation. There's an Omaha Community Foundation. Great people doing great work. Um, it's it, They're certainly not organized in the same way that Nebraska Community Foundation is. I got uh, but but lots of you know lot, lots of opportunities to work together and and support one another in our work. Uh, if I might, I wanted to circle back around to that that prior question for just a moment in terms of what's the other thing that I think differentiates the Nebraska Community Foundation. And John, this Please is something do. you've you've witnessed a couple of years in a row. But we're really we're really vested in peer learning. Um, in in helping adults to have experiential learning, but but having those community leaders really be in conversation with one another. Just because I'm I'm absolutely of the opinion that people hear something differently from a peer sure. than they do from someone who is quote unquote professionalized about their approach to it or or being paid for doing that work. Um, so we did, so a tremendous amount of our training and education is actually done within the context of uh, peer learning and peer mentoring and and an affiliated fund leader from one community helping affiliated fund leaders from a community down the road uh, to you know to understand their story but to help them work on what's next in their community. Um, in Nebraska, you said there was there's this. There's this uh, there's this game out there called uh, Seven Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon. You guys heard of that before? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, in the context of Nebraska, we're only separated by two degrees. You know, if you don't know somebody, you know somebody that knows somebody. And a big part of our work is is being connected and being in relationship with lots and lots of different people 
And the interesting thing about using philanthropy as a community development tool is you can't make anybody do anything. All we can do is motivate and inspire people. Uh, but who ultimately is in the best position to do that? And it's it's people that are already in relationship with one another. Um, so that's much of what we're trying to do is to help community leaders to be comfortable and confident to talk to their friends and neighbors and people that they have deep trusting relationships with about what's the difference that the person they're talking with could make in the future of their place. And that's, you know, that conversation obviously ranges all over the place. Uh, and sometimes it's about making a charitable gift. Uh, sometimes it's about becoming a leader of that fund. Sometimes it's about um, volunteering their time and talent to help get something done. But it's, uh, John, you've been so articulate over the years about how important invitation is as a part of community building. And we really try to help community leaders understand just how important and profound that invitation is within the community building process. Give us an example. Uh, I, I don't want to try to force a generalization that isn't there, but if people who are listening here may wonder, here we have a town of a, of a thousand people. And uh, the fund is manifested by the activity of, I don't know, how many people? Four, five, six, 20, 50? And uh, how most frequently are those people identified and coalesced? Uh, and you're absolutely right in your, your sense that um, it's, you know, we have affiliated funds that have uh, leadership groups. We call them fund advisory committees. Uh, those fund advisory committees might range between five community leaders and maybe 20. Okay. Uh, and in some funds, they'll have a really uh, active and robust sort of subcommittee structure. Uh, so the memberships of those subcommittees might then total up to 40 or 50 people, just depending upon the, the context of the place. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you might have, you know, other things happening where literally hundreds of people are a part of helping to to build and manifest that. Um, those groups are, in fact, self-perpetuating groups. Now, some might say, well, that's not the way to do it. Well, what I would say to any of that is within the context of Nebraska, we found that that's the, the structure that works best with community building here is people that are already in relationship with one another and then looking around the table and saying, you know, who else do we need to connect with or what other opportunities are there? So in, in some communities, they have um, entirely local leadership and in some community-based affiliated funds, there's actually alumni and expatriates that participate as a part of that. Uh, it's all one of those things that's kind of I mean, we're interested in, in educating and training and sharing effective practice, uh, but ultimately we're not interested in telling people they have to do it one way or the other. Um, a longtime colleague that has a little quip that says, uh, community building isn't like rocket science. We actually know how to put a man on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're constantly learning and evolving what we're doing here. Uh, one of the things we do know is, communities that are doing really, really well within this work are communities that are figuring out how they're 
engaging dozens and hundreds of their neighbors in conversations about the future of their place and inviting them to be a part of that. Um, so again, it's it's much of, of what you've you've written about and theorized about and, and and practiced over the years in terms of how important that active invitation is. You also have uh, you also have uh, observed the difference between the kind of present day function of a elected body, the the city council, the village board, and the affiliated fund. Could you say a few words about that distinction? Could I, I apologize. Could you repeat the second half of that question, John? Well, that that there is uh you could think about a local place and it it's needing uh people collectively to get things done, right? A city council is often thought of as the this is how we as a group get things done. But the affiliated fund is a group of people getting things done. What's the difference? I think the difference is um a couple things. One is I talked about the fact that um in using philanthropy as one of the 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 primary community development tools here, you can't make anybody do anything. So that in and of itself fundamentally differentiates it from government because we're not we're not assessing taxes or fees from anyone. It's all, you know, willing partner, you know, people mm-hmm. that are that are willing to be engaged. Uh the second one is and and this is a generalization, uh but I think to a large extent governments, you know, primarily focuses on now and the very near term. And I would hope that our affiliated funds, especially those that are building endowments uh, for the future of a, a place, are really more focused on the future, are more focused on, you know, what sort of place do we want to have 10 and 20 years from now as opposed to three to five years from now. And again, that's a generalization because, I mean, government does do work that has generational impact. We know that through infrastructure and technology and other things. Uh, but I think that's one of the key differentiating factors is is government is primarily focused on now and the short term. Um, the Nebraska Community Foundation isn't an organization that's really focused on relief. We're a, we're an institution that's focused on development. Uh, so so sometimes I mean you'll have a, a tragic circumstance happen in a place and. And, and the people in that place need relief. And we've got lots of incredibly competent partners out there that are really good at that work. Uh, so we've decided that that's not our work. You know, our work is to help people really focus on the future and focus on what are, what are the things that help to build and ultimately magnetize this community so people say that's where I want to live and work. That's where I want to raise my family. That's where I want to have my business. Um, so those are, you know, you, you, within this, we're not, you know, the Nebraska Community Foundation and its affiliated funds. We're not all things to all people. Um, but I'm, you know, and you can obviously speak to this. You've been around this. Um, I think we have done a nice job of helping lots of community leaders 
focus on the future in ways that they hadn't previously. And you also, in some of these places, find that the local people engage uh, a significant number of the local citizens in discussions mm-hmm. that w- would result in their joint dialogue and thinking together about the future rather than the four or five or ten people who are right. on the affiliated fund itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a big part of of what we're trying to do is to help people to to not only envision but also plan for the future. And a, and a big part of that entire process is figuring out how can we have community-wide conversation about that mm-hmm. future and, and, and what sort of all of us collectively desire. Uh, so in many cases, um, we'll have a community-wide visioning session. Or we might have um, several of those. In the, the community of Norfolk, we help to facilitate six of those for constituencies like uh, middle school and high school students, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, nonprofit executives, elders, people that were already investors in that affiliated fund, you know, a variety of different constituencies, um, you know, just to help sort of start that conversation and then figure out, okay, and how do you, then how do you connect some of those conversations? Because many times, uh, and, and we've all seen this, I mean, many times, people accidentally end up talking past one another as opposed to with one another. And um, sometimes within these sessions, we're just, we're just helping people to, you know, to make those connections and ultimately to make some more common assumptions than what they had previously. Peter, you have any? Uh, well, I want to uh, open it up. We've been going about 30 minutes, right? uh, so but I do have one question, oh. Jeff. You know, there's a lot of conversation about poverty and wealth inequality, and I, I'm sure Nebraska is hit by that. Any? How do you think about that? I, uh, have you seen the affiliated groups, for example, actually capitalize or small start small businesses? I know there's a lot of regional efforts, like you, you mentioned in, in your town, have been a heritage tour and try to get more tourist dollars there. But in, I mean, I think seen, there's, a, there's a couple a couple pieces to that. Um, well, let's start with the the individual piece in particular. Um, so one of the things we've always tried to look at within the the context of Nebraska and the context of um, especially the out migration of young people is, okay, what are the things you can do to create greater economic opportunity as well as greater opportunism and optimism about the future? Uh, So a part of that might be helping to build sort of um, collective economic development infrastructure. Uh, So we've helped to do that in, in some of the communities and counties where we've worked in to help them amalgamate uh federal, state, local government dollars along with philanthropic dollars to have uh, economic development professionals. And then how do those economic development professionals really be focused on, okay, what are the things we can do to really, you know, not only increase economic opportunity in this place, but also to change the conversation with young people about Mm -hmm. where they want to live and work as adults. Uh, so much of our work is around supporting both entrepreneurship curriculum as well as 
entrepreneurs, uh, connecting that with leadership development and skills development associated with group dynamics, having that conversation in as many ways possible with young people about, you know, where do they want to be and what do they want to be a part of, and then ultimately the philanthropy ends up being sort of the glue that helps hold all of that together over time in comparison to, and, you know, we've all been through the process where you apply for a state or federal grant. Uh, you start doing some of that work, but that grant period is three years. Well, what happens in year four? Exactly. Well, many times those people end up spending all of their time just sort of trying to to sustain the, the small institution they started as opposed to really getting to concentrate on their, their mission. Um, the other one that I'll lift up is um, what we refer to as non-traditional scholarships. So in some of our community-based affiliated funds, they've really identified that one of the, the most effective ways of helping people that are currently working part-time service sector jobs is to help them return to school, maybe get an associate's degree, maybe get an additional certification, whatever the case might be. Um, so these scholarships are for things like uh, helping an LPN return to school and become a registered nurse, helping a, uh, a high school educated mechanic become a, a certified diesel mechanic, helping a, a paraprofessional within the school system become a, a certified teacher. Uh, all these paths from, you know, part-time service sector work to something that's clearly a member of the middle class. Um, so we've seen a lot of terrific work happen with that, and I think it's also kind of change the conversation around scholarships in general, around if you're going to invest these community resources in people, how do you invest them so the individual and the community both benefit? Because a lot of scholarships uh, uh, invested in getting people to go to the university is really an investment in their leaving town. It really is, and 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 we're not certainly in the business of saying that we shouldn't um, we shouldn't be sending people off to college. We we know that in this economy we need everybody to have more than a high school degree, um, but that doesn't mean you have to sort of cut off your nose to spite your face. Uh, certainly, we can we can set up scholarships, and we've done dozens of these whereby preference is given to students who say they're interested in returning to that community or their region after they complete school. Or, you know, how do you, how do you just connect those dots? But ultimately, and most importantly within this, it's not about sort of holding somebody to some rules around this. It's the opportunity to have a conversation with them about what they want and how what they want in fact, coincides with what is best for the community. It isn't different from that. But it's, you know, how do you, how do you begin and sustain that conversation with people about, you're a member of our community. We want you to continue to be a member of our community. Great, great focus. Let me interrupt for a second because we want to create some space in case people want to ask questions. Some people are writing in the chat. Which I don't know, Jeff, if you can see that or not. But Maggie, you want to invite people to unmute and ask a question or make a comment? Yes, I'd like to do that. Um, so if you're call if you've dialed in to talk to into this conversation, you can press star eight on your telephone and you'll be put into a queue. 
uh, if you're following along on the web, uh, there's a spot where you can uh, post a comment or a question. And, and Jeff, I don't. Are you able to see the uh, the chat happening? Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking through them now. Okay, great. It sounds like you already answered one of the questions, maybe a couple of the questions there. Uh, and we do have a caller. Let's see. I'm I'm going to. Uh, we have. I'm going to take guest number eleven. who just dialed in. I'll invite them to speak. Yes. Okay. So, that must be me. Can you all hear me? Be, yes. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Yeah. Um, this is Debbie Johnson. I'm from Austin, Texas. I want to thank Jeff for, for taking the time and, and Peter, of course, for setting this up. Um, we've heard, uh, actually, interestingly, uh, a lot of people in Austin have been talking about the Nebraska effort, which is what prompted me to um, dial in. And I thank Jeff for giving us a little more context and information about um, and, and background on how you went uh, about your study and what it's meant to you all, because I know uh, now here we have a new head to the Community Foundation who is trying some new and innovative things, and so uh, potentially we'll be following in your footsteps. Um, my actual, I just have a, a totally personal indulgence here. Um, when I saw your picture, you look an awful lot like Jay Yost. Are you related? Uh, yeah, he's my brother. <laughs> I might have been. I went to school with Jay, and in fact, we were in mortarboard and some other things together. Oh, hilarious! So. Well, <laughs> I, when are, I you, love when are you moving back to Nebraska? Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> when are you moving home to Nebraska? Don't count on it. <laughs> Not uh. from Austin. <laughs> oh, but you, anyway, you're, thanks. So you're from you're from Austin, but you came to the University of Nebraska. Yeah, I'm actually not from Texas. I'm from Lincoln originally, went to the university there, and my husband's a golfer, so enough said why I'm in Austin. Very good. <laughs> so anyway, tell, tell Jay hello. It's been a long time. Um, it was Debbie Schmidt was my maiden name. So. No, I will do so. Thank you I'm for making that connection. Here. It's a Thanks, perfect, it's a perfect uh, anecdote of the two degrees of separation piece. Yeah. It, it really yeah. is. <laughs> Thanks, Debbie. Yep. Thank you, Kathy, anybody else in line? Maggie? So, yes, we do. Um, let's see. This is Ontario. Hello? Oh, hi. Yes, uh, it's Michelle Strutzenberger calling. I'm from Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, thanks as well for, for hosting this, Peter and John, the conversation with Jeff. Um, I just have a question. I see that the Democracy Collaborative in Ohio recently re released a report on innovative community foundations. Uh, they shared the stories of 29 U.S. and one Canadian uh, foundation. And one element they mentioned was a growing exploration of something called impact investing uh, by these foundations. Um, so you mentioned that the Nebraska Foundation itself is not a grant maker, but it's 225 affiliated funds are. Mm -hmm. um, what what possibilities do you see for these funds engaging in this this sort of impact investing or social finance type work? Um, so by impact investing, are you related to think, are you uh, connecting it to things like mission related investment and program related investments? Or is this just more yeah, of the... Yes, so there is an expectation of, of both a financial and a social return. So there's that sort of mm -hmm. uh, blended ROI. I mean, certainly the, the point of, of having any of these resources is to be able to help people create community impact in their place. Um, I'm a big believer that when you've seen one community, you've seen one community. 
and <laughs> making making generalizations around what is a good investment and what is not uh, can be a really dicey proposition. Um, so it's part of why we really try to focus on how do you how do you connect uh, the grant making with you know the process of of engaging lots and lots of people of building that collective vision going through a planning process uh, creating priorities because we know we're not going to have enough resources or enough leadership or enough time to be able to do all of these things at once. Um, but part of what I think you're working on within that process of of engaging people and continuing to to sort of funnel down toward um, you know moving from lots and lots of things being important to a few things being priorities is the opportunity to see something change. Um, the connecting piece to that all make is um, I, I would, you know, hopeful that, that many of you are familiar with the concept of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, over time, I've become a big believer that a community has a self-fulfilling prophecy just like an individual does. And how does all of this, pro all of these process things that we're discussing today, how does, how do you help that community to really identify where they're at as it relates to their self-concept and their self-fulfilling prophecy, and how do you help them continue to, you know, to continue to discern how to make that better and how to make that more optimistic? And certainly, grant making can be a key tool within the context of that. Um, the final thing I'll say on this question is I think sometimes within the concept of um, when we have this intersection between um, community and philanthropy, we end up putting too much emphasis on philanthropy and not enough emphasis on community. Uh, I mean, the thing that, that I think I've become very comfortable saying over time is Money is an important tool, but it's only one of many tools required to do good community building. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, and, and the transfer of wealth was all in, the transfer of wealth studies were all intended to help make this point. Um, the limiting resource here isn't money. Um, we're an extraordinarily wealthy country. We're an extraordinarily wealthy society. We could we can pretty much choose to do whatever we choose to do. So the question is, how do you choose to, <laughs> you know, to to focus on community building and creating creating opportunity and creating more just outcomes for more people? Uh, so to me, this is more of a function of leadership and more of a function of vision and more of a function of engagement than it is a function of capital. Um, I, they're all important. Uh, but within the context of community building, I'm convinced that money is not the limiting resource to us getting things done. It's going to be lots of other pieces. And if the, the vision and the leadership and the engagement are in place, um, I've now got years and years of evidence that we can, we can figure out how to access the money to, to help get that done. Part of so I, just I, I probably didn't take that that on directly, and so I'm. If that wasn't responsive enough, I'd be happy to have a conversation about that on, offline. And I think the question is that you see a lot of people, like venture capitalists and people like that, 
really turning things upside down in alignment with what you're talking about, Jeff, and saying we want to, we're going to invest, but the question of return is secondary or third. Where we want to invest is in new ventures that you know have a social justice component or social impact. And the impact investing investing in something called SoCal. Right. It, it's not just it's not just the community foundation philanthropy. It's also you know local people with all the same goals you have of keeping kids here and building a place and and uh, and changing the criteria for what constitutes a good investment. And, right. You're you're thinking about that's really aligned with that very much. Maggie, anybody else calling in? I want to. Uh, no, you Peter, no, no one else is calling there's in. A, there's a couple notes here on the, the couple yeah. of questions that people have asked that I think might be interesting to connect to. If that's please, if that's okay, Peter got, and John. Got about five. Sure. Yeah, um, please. There is there is one here around. Uh, is Mac Johnson on the phone? Yeah. Um, his his note here is see a good related resource for trust oriented grassroots relational organizing the network weaver handbook, uh, and I would like to state that I think he's absolutely correct. Uh, a woman named June Holly from Athens, Ohio, has created um, network weaving, and I I find it to be uh, extraordinarily useful work. Yeah. And she's been working on this for uh, a couple decades and doing terrific work. And I'm actually having a a series of conversations with John and Tom Moskeller and others around how do we connect network weaving and asset mapping within the context of uh, a particular place and helping them to not only, you know, fully articulate that vision and move that from plan to opportunity, but also how do you use this to be an even greater connection with all of these people that care uh, and are willing to, to step up and lead and support? Uh, so there's a there's a link that Mac put in here to the Network Weaver stuff, and, and I would heartily endorse um, that good work as another another piece of um, of building out this ecosystem. Any other uh Questions, Sarah, that you want to respond to? I, I like the one, and I'd be interested in, in John and Tom, the two of you um, maybe talking about this a little bit, but local people are being witnessed by you as they assume dominion over their inner and external resources, a huge discovery of personal power. Somebody is saying that. Mm-hmm. Guest yeah, number eight right. wrote uh, Peter. <laughs> I don't know what Peter's last name is. Peter K. Peter, um, Peter Kestenbaum. He's a he's a friend of ours. Oh. I I just think that's a really, I that's a really important statement within the context of this work over time. Is it's it's never about the money. It's always about the people and helping people yeah, to have uh, confidence and feeling like their work is. Um, Important and honorable, and they're difference makers. Right. I, I think what what part of the work you're doing, Jeff, is uh, helping people come to terms with wealth, and you could call it the right use of wealth. You know, in this consumer society, a surplus society, accumulation society, most of us are out of relationship with money, either being whether you're poor or whether you're rich, and I think. 
you're trying to bring us into a right relationship with wealth. And recognize it's useful, but it's not the point. And most people say that, especially at the end of their lives. But I think you really embody that with the work that you're doing and the thinking, the facilitation that you bring. It's really quite amazing. Well, that's, so really, great. that's really gracious of you to say thank you very much. And, yeah. and all that credit goes to, to all of these amazing people here in Nebraska. I mean, yeah. there's now 1,800 volunteers that are serving as affiliated fund leaders for these uh, these various community-based efforts, and it's it's it really has become a pretty sizable movement in terms of the number of people and and the number of moving parts. And it's uh, yeah, Jeff. If uh, people want to follow up on this discussion, can you uh, tell us your your website and anything sure. else that uh, sure. might so be accessible? Our website is, and I can I can just write this in here as well. Um, so I will do that here in just a moment. But our website is nebcommfound.org. Or you can obviously just Google Nebraska Community Foundation. That'll take you to our our homepage. Um, and I'm certainly happy to have offline conversations with um, with those of you that are interested in, in following up on some of this, whether it be around how do we use the transfer of wealth or how we've we've tried to figure out this this very decentralized system because it's uh it is a work in progress and uh I think that's the that's the fun is every day we're building something and and, and helping to uh be a partner in creating an opportunity or solving a problem or or whatever the case might be and it uh it feels good to have the opportunity to wake up to this every morning. Okay. You know, I also had the thought that you call them volunteers, but what you're really doing is creating citizens. And because uh, they're co-producing something. They're not just because most volunteers for someone else's sake and there's a co-production, co-creation in every the way you talk about it, it's really what citizenship is about. So thank you for that also. Oh, thank you. So I think we're 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 pretty near the end. John, any final word you have? Uh, this like, makes me think over and over again that when you think about money as wealth, uh, what we're learning here is that if you really are concerned about community, it isn't about grants. Money is is the bait, not the fish. And what's going on here is a, a, a wonderful recognition that always keeping the relational aspect of community at the forefront is is critical. And how do we use money in such a way that it's a precipitant of wisdom and more uh, in, intentional community life because... We all know that there are places, often lower-income places, that have become grants economies. And there you can actually finally, in the, the philanthropic and government world, can lead people to think you can't do anything without a grant. So grants go two ways. They can either be wonderful precipitants or they can be disabling in the long run. And what we're hearing here is the way to think about wealth as a real community builder 
Uh, it's a wonderful thing you've done, Jeff. Like I said, it's just it's it's hundreds and hundreds of people focusing on this, and it's just a it's an honor to be a part of it. So thank you, John. John's been a uh, a wonderful inspiration and and uh, additional content provider to to us here in Nebraska the last couple of years. And John, I just want to thank you for doing all that. It's uh, it's great to learn every, from you. Helps everybody charge their batteries, and I think that's always an important part of this. Is, uh, All right, thank you very much, Jeff and John. You now have a new job title, Battery Charger. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. So, Maggie, do you want to uh, complete this? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, Jeff, I'd like to to thank you for a couple of reminders to me. Uh, And one was it's always about the people Um, and that we do have abundance. Um, Sometimes we forget those things. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, Jeff has posted online the website, N-E-B-C-O-M-M-F-O-U-N-D.org, and you can reach him through that website. Um, and we'd like you to join us next time, which is going to be April 7, and soon we'll be posting the schedule for the year on our website, uh, which is www.abundant.org community.com. So please do stay in touch with us. This brings our program to a close today, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks. Thank you, Maggie. Bye-bye. Thank you, John. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, bye Thank you Take all. Care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 